Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. This morning, uh, as I come last week, we had sort of a Holy Spirit departure from the study, and, and week by week it seems that that's happening more often than not these days. But last week I talked to you essentially from two passages of Scripture. I don't know that I ever listed either of them. Colossians 1:27, and then the other one, also uh, by the same inspired writer, the Apostle Paul, is 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Amanda, if we can pop those up there real quick. Um, I want you to see this. But to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory, I love this word, of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now, we're picking up mid-sentence because I'm after this last statement. Irrespective of what comes before it, here's where it lands. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Would you turn and say that to somebody? Point your finger and say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay? Now, we've studied here for a couple of years how the, the concept of God's glory, watch this, is not just this radiating light, but at the root of this term, please pay close attention, is the idea of an opinion. So any place the opinion or word of God is declared, we can believe that that glory of God will reside. And so Christ in us, the hope of glory, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 18. We've lived here. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, everybody know what Spirit we're is talk, talking about here? The Holy Spirit. Everybody say Holy. Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the wholeness of God. Okay? The, so we'll add that. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Holy Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Somebody say praise God. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Here it comes again. The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Everybody watch this. Earlier in this same passage, the writer would make reference to the promise from the prophet Jeremiah that there was coming a time when by the Spirit, God would write his word on our heart. How many know things changed as we came into the new covenant where the opinion of God previously watched, carved in tablets of stone, the opinion, the word of God, or written on scrolls, but he said there's coming a time not when it will be written on scrolls or tablets of stone, but it will be written on your heart. And this 2 Corinthians passage, if you read the whole thing, it talks about it. How many are thankful for that this morning? Just shout amen. And here's the good news. Christ in us, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, being transformed from the same image from what? Opinion to opinion, opinion to opinion. How many know no matter what latest opinion of God you may fulfill, he's not ever done? He's always got a next opinion. He's always got a next place. Not obsessively. Listen to me, beloved. Because here's what I want you to get this morning. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Would everybody say that? It's the hope of glory. Watch this. Excuse me. It's glory in us is the hope of transformation. Right there on the screen. We're going to say them again. And transformation in us is the hope of holy. 
Now, we study that here. I don't have time to open it. You say, if you're new here today, I'll uh, text me or message me at Tom at New Hope Online, and I'll send you the link to this teaching. But I want us to read this from top to bottom and make the declaration. This is Bible straight up. This is Colossians 1, 27, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Can we start at the top? Christ in me, the hope of glory. Glory in me, the hope of transformation. Transformation in me, the hope of holy. You can be made whole. I can be made whole. Because the opinion of God is never exhausted concerning you. He never runs out. The opinion of God is never used up and never exhausted. And he begins to write it on our heart and things begin to change. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Glory in me, the hope of transformation. Transformation, as we've studied, is God increasing my capacity for him. Look at the person next to you and say, I think you got a little bigger while you've been standing next to me. Go ahead. That'll be the only time you can say that where it won't be an insult. I know some of you look back and say, that, that wasn't nice. Yeah, it was. It's a different kind of bigger. Okay. Hallelujah. Just turn, now, turn back at him and say, you know, that was good. Come on. Tell him that. You may be seated, but as you're being seated, can we just sing a show us your glory, show us your glory, wonder and surrender, we fall down, show us your glory, Woo. Your come on, lift your voice. Show us your glory. Show us your glory. In honor and surrender we fall. Oh my. Show us your glory. Show us your glory. Woo! Show us your glory. Okay. Last part of the, of whatever sermon is coming, the last part of a preamble. You see that language? Put that back up, please, real quick, Amanda. Let every burning heart be holy ground. Uh, we here are very familiar with Exodus chapter 3. It's a place in the Bible that is a primary reference where God appears to Moses from a burning bush, and he says, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. 2,000 years before it, holy ground, the place of perfected worship, would be known as the Garden of Eden. The last conversation that God would have with mankind about functional worship would be in the Garden of Eden. And for 2,000 years, when you come to Exodus chapter 3, the same word translated worship it's used in Galatians, excuse me, is also used in Genesis 2.15. So let me say that again. I think it's 2.15. The same word translated when it said um, he placed man in the garden to preserve and to keep. It's a, one of those two words, preserve or keep, that's translated Worship in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. The word means worship. So there's no conversation for, of worship for 2,000 years. And I just love this little thought that the angels, 1 Peter chapter 1 says, the angels observe everything God does when he interfaces with mankind. Isn't that amazing? And they're just amazed at what God does to us redemptively. So I believe the angels are watching and they look at the Father and the Father says, uh, I'm going down to have another worship conversation. There's a guy named Moses I got to talk to. And I believe the angels looked at him because the previous worship conversation happened exclusively and entirely within an environment known as the garden. The garden. 
And I believe the angels might have looked back and said, that's great. Um, you have another garden? And God looks back and says, no, all I have is one bush. I don't think that we properly understand the scope of God's intensity and intentionality towards you and me. To where we prescribe the places, surely it requires a place like this. You see, the last place that God met with mankind in that fashion, an open encounter and exchange in a conversation of worship, would be a place of perfection known as the Garden of Eden. And it is hardly a place of perfection in a place called the wilderness. You want to know what the word wilderness was used for? Places that had no names. Moses went in a place without a name. Forty years of failure and devastation. And God says, I know how to start. I'm going to go find a failure. And so he meets with him one bush, not an entire garden. Don't be surprised when God shows up in your life at an unlikely place, when you think, certainly God can't appear to me in my life and speak to me, I don't have a garden. God says, I'll appear to you in a place that doesn't have a name at a time where you feel like no one knows your name and you're more thrilled that nobody knows your name so they can't find you there. I haven't finished working on this little song that said, in the wilderness alone, nothing around. Where no one goes and no one knows, so I can't be found. Hear Moses singing this. But then a voice calls my name from holy ground. It says, come here, come near, come now. Show us your glory, Father. Show us your glory. So many here today, in this room, watching online, they need an encounter with your glory for purposes we're soon about to discover. I ask it in your name. Amen. One more time, look at the person next to you and say, you need to see his glory. Okay? Let's talk about that a little bit. Now, today we're continuing, and I'm going to hope I can get as far as I can go. Because things happen in spirit life and in church life. And this has been one of those weeks, and it seems to happen frequently during the holidays. Frequently. And I, I'm, I've offered through the years, through 40 years of pastoral ministry, why family things seem to stir up and why the tension of going home for the holidays or being around family members and the ones you're around. How many know there's always the weird ones? You know, everybody has one. <laughs> Somebody actually just did like this. <laughs> so there are the weird ones. Everybody's family has the weird one. And, and you typically, I was going to say you try to hope you're not the weird one. But the problem is if you are the weird one, you never know it. <clears throat> Talk to them. You know, just this time when you go home for the holidays, go to that person and say, did it ever occur to you that you're the weird one? And no, no, don't do that. That's not a good way to start the holidays, okay? But during this time, there. The, there always seems to be sort of a disproportionate upheaval. And I think it's tied to emotional and psychological and even spiritual realities. So I want you to know I'm constrained by that. And about five minutes in this could make a left turn to go a different direction than what, than what I had planned. I've been wanting to talk about the goodness of God. It's a huge issue. And you can say, well, what, the goodness of God? See, good is one of those inert words. 
It's not awesome. It's not great. It's not magnificent. It's not incredible. It's not a wow. It's not bomb diggity or any other 40-year-old word that's now gone away or phrase. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not any, it's just, it's good. Why is it that God chooses that term to fundamentally describe himself every time there's an issue? God is good. It's used hundreds of times, over 600 times it appears in Scripture. And it, it usually travels with some other words that we're going to look at very, in, in just a moment. But over the course of the Thanksgiving, by the way, and, until I had whatever this latest thing is going on in my body, and thank you for your prayers. Um, they, they still haven't found, apparently, uh, uh, they said you are losing blood somewhere and we don't know where. So they're doing everything they can of, of pictures and scoping and doing everything. So uh, there's another test coming up. So if you just remember me and your prayer. And, you know, I'm always careful about that. People say, well, why don't you update people on the occasions that you're sick? And here's why. Listen very closely. Because I get to stand here. And it seems sort of unfair that, wait a minute, there's probably another hundred people here with needs just like mine. Why don't I get the chance to tell everybody about those? And so I'm always very sensitive about that. My wife tells me I have issues. I think too hard about things. So, um, But she's getting used to it. But I really would appreciate your prayers to make some final determinations on what is causing all of this, and I think we're going to get some answers. Okay, so during the middle of this, the reason I mentioned that is because I had started a, like a 24-day morning devotional and, and stumbled across Psalm 136, and it was every day giving thanks for something. So let's look at Psalm 136 real quickly. We've got to move pretty quickly here. Give thanks to the Lord. Here we go. For he is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy or loving kindness is everlasting. His mercy. Now, this phrase is the phrase, there's two words translated mercy in the Old Testament. There's one word translated mercy in the New Testament. I think the New Testament word sort of wraps up both words. The two words in the Old Testament, one, listen closely, one represents a covenant loyalty or God refusing the right to abandon his covenant. That's powerful, isn't it? God refusing the right to abandon his covenant. The second word is one that's born, and it's a term that comes uh, uh, from the same word that shows a mother's love. So I want you to understand when this word mercy shows up, it represents, one more time, both the single term in the New Testament, watch me, and the two terms in the Old Testament all sort of boil down to this one thing. The force of God's love refusing to join me in any opinion of me above his opinion of me. Mercy is the force of God's love refusing to join me in any opinion of me above his opinion of me. And I can defend that, okay? And I have through the years. We've studied that a lot, written songs from it. But I want us to get the understanding in the Old Testament that when you read whichever word of the two is being used in context, it really becomes enlightening. And here's the extent of that. That God steps up and says, based upon my own decision, the first word of loyalty to my covenant, you see, as you come to the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 2, God's word says God can't deny himself. It's immutable, in other words, intrinsic aspects of his nature. He, he can't deny himself. And so God says, I want you to know that my commitment to you is based upon my commitment to my covenant. 
it shows up all throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, during the Christmas holidays, we will read Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, the father along with the mother, Elizabeth, of John the Baptist, both of whom were advanced in years, 80 plus years, uh, is speculated that they have this child. Uh, Zacharias has not been able to speak. He's been rendered mute for nine months of the pregnancy of Elizabeth until John, who we know to be John the Baptist, was born. And when John the Baptist is born, he's able, Zechariah, the father, is able to speak, and he stands up and he bursts into, blessed be the Lord God, the father. And he goes into that. And two times throughout that passage, he said, who has done what he has done, watch, in mercy toward our fathers. What does that even mean? He said, you are the beneficiary today of a commitment that God made 2,000 years or 1,000 years ago. You are a beneficiary today of the commitment that he's made to our fathers. Now, I don't know if that sinks in, but when he begins to stand, he gives a disclosure, Zechariah does, of the absolute heart of God, and specifically that one Hebrew concept that God says, Sean, I'm acting the way I act towards you not because I need a reason to love, because I am love. And because I am love, I am a God that loves. And because I am a God that loves, because I am love, I'm loving you and extending mercy to you based on who I am, not anything you've done. Now, I don't know, guys, but that's really, really good news. So time and time again. Now, if you read all 26 verses of Psalm 136, only the first three verses have the phrase, give thanks to the God of gods, give thanks to the Lord of lords. But I happen to believe it's implied. In other words, if you were to continue reading verse 4, give thanks to him alone who does great wonders. And at the end of every verse, it says, for your mercy endures forever. Or New American Standard says, your loving kindness is everlasting. I, the, the psalmist here, and they don't know, there's still debate over who wrote it, doesn't make any difference, but the psalmist here is caught in the wonder and the grip of mercy. At the end of every sentence, but your mercy endures forever. And it's this word that says, you refuse the right to abandon us. And then he starts, not only the first nine verses, he talks about this magnificence of God, but when you get to verse 10, then he says, now I'm not just talking about who God is, let me tell you about this great God, what he's done. And he begins in verse 10, and I'm going to add what I've said, give thanks to the Lord who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, for he didn't abandon us. He refused the right to abandon us. And the story goes on and on in testimony where he says, I want to show you how the mercy of the Lord was consistent at every term and at the end of every verse, again and again and again and again and again. Goodness and mercy. Let's move on ahead. First Chronicles 16, verse 34. I'm going to give you five or six real quick verses. Write them down, take pictures, whatever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, watch, for he is good and his loving kindness or mercy endures forever. Same word, okay? The Lord is good for his, for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Psalm 34, verse 9. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Now the door begins to be opened here. 
We begin to understand that the goodness perceiving, watch this, perceiving the goodness of the Lord is not really an exact science. And I'm going to land right there. Perceiving the the goodness of the Lord is not an exact science. Well, where did that come from, Pastor Tom? Look at Psalms 34, 9. How many know everybody's taste buds are different? I had something whipped up the other night at the house that I thought just tasted so great. And I said, hey, baby, come here and taste this. And she came over and tasted it. She goes, ah, it's, it's okay. I thought, it's not okay. It tastes really good. No, it's got a little bit too this a spice or that spice. And I said, <laughs> watch. You don't know what's good. Why? You don't know what's good. Why? Because it's taste buds. Everybody's is different. Pastor Buck Marshall does not like peppermint patties. I think people who won't eat any peppermint at Christmas time will probably go to hell. And I can't, I can't figure, can't, can't figure that out. They, but but people don't just people don't know what tastes good. What's and as my wife says about nearly every conflict she has, what's wrong with people, right? That more on that later. Um, usually that's usually directed towards me. What's wrong with people? Wait, as people meet, yeah, okay. Um, Watch, that his goodness and his mercy says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I'm working towards something here. Tasting is not an exact science. But God said, I'm offering you an encounter that the goodness of the Lord, watch this, is only finally determined through encounter and presence. It is an engagement of the spirit, not of the mind. We will face things, and I mentioned last week, we will face things all the time. There are brothers and sisters sitting in this home. When something good happens, well, so-and-so, man, we had a head-on collision. I can't tell you how many times that when we were telling people in February of this year, we had a head-on collision and and God's grace was just amazing. Brenda was able to avoid the direct hit, hit her side of the car. And when we were off on the side of the road, right next to the car was this huge uh, concrete telephone pole. And I said, did you even remember seeing that? And she said, no. And I said, well, whatever was going on, angels guiding you or subconscious reaction, you managed to slip off, miss, miss that pole by the thickness of paint. Because the car was literally sitting right against it. And, um, and if she'd gone any farther, then of course the damage would have been greater and that we'd have slammed into that telephone pole instead of a glancing blow from a head-on decision. So I would tell people what happened. They'd say this statement, and it's okay. Boy, isn't God good? And it just began to hit me as I came to this year in Thanksgiving. We say that about good. Isn't God good? Because we look at positive things. And, and I want to be so careful and sensitive. I'm pausing on purpose here. We've prayed for people here this year that have experienced a supernatural, miraculous touch of God, cancer in their body, and it's gone. And then we prayed for people here who just in recent weeks have gone to be with the Lord. You get the report about the cancer report coming back, just that astounds every physician. Physicians are crying in the hospital just overwhelms that I don't understand this as they talk to the one family and then to the second family, I'm sorry we've done everything we can. To the first one, we typically responded, man, isn't God good? But you know what I, I discovered? 
I discovered sitting in the room with Sandy Ogle. Last time I saw her, a precious sister, an elder here in this body, who would go to be with the Lord only three or four days after we sat and talked. But when I sat and talked with her, perhaps like no other person other than my mother coming close, but Sandy was fully cognizant, fully cognizant. And she and Mike standing at the bed and saying, we've done everything we can. The doctors say this, you know, we've done it. We're still believing for God, but it's in God's hands. And I'm sitting there staring at the both of them like they're unicorns. Because they're standing there saying, God's good. Wait, 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 wait. No. God's still good even when, please watch this statement. Watch. Even when the God who is doesn't, do we still believe he's still the I am. When the God who is doesn't. See, we think faith is believing God can. Hebrews clears that up and said faith is believing God is. Because God didn't speak from the burning bush and say, I am the I can. He said, I am the I am. There's no guarantee of absolute outcome. Please hear me. And if any of you think I'm being faithless in this statement, I pray for people to be healed. I've seen people be healed. But there is no absolute conclusive promise from God's word that every prayer is going to be answered the way we want them to be answered. Watch based on our definition of what we perceive to be good. And I want to say this quickly. Good is only resolved in presence. And let's just keep going because I've already opened the door to that right there. When he says, oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Psalm 23. And see, here's another place I could get hung up as we go to verse 6. Psalm 23, verse 6. If I were to go back to the previous five verses this morning, that was a little passing thing. But watch when he comes to verse 6. He says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, if, if you were to go back just for the fun of it, this was this morning and not even part of the message. But I want you to see, I want you to see and get the understanding of this. Because this, this goodness and mercy thing, again, is, a, is, is spiritual. It's not cerebral. You will not figure out the goodness of God here. You will not. And I wish I had five or six weeks to dig into this topic, Romans 9, and all the places it goes. You see, we wrestle with the goodness of God more than any other thing, and I'm going to show you that. We wrestle with the goodness of God because how is a God, watch, if a God is all-powerful, and he's all, then he's not all good. Because if he's all-powerful, then there wouldn't be evil. And any God that's all-powerful to create evil certainly can't resolve, uh, can't, can't be good. You will never resolve the problem of, if you will, theodicy. That's how good and evil. You'll never resolve it here. The only place it's resolved is here. The only place it's resolved is by presence and encounter. And I'm, and I'm going to lay on that with you. But I just want you to get a glimpse of Psalm 23. Let me see if I have that up here. Watch this. Surely goodness and loving kindness. Verse 6 will follow me all the days of my life. Will it follow me when the Lord is my shepherd? And I shall not want. You see, the only thing that solves the not wanting problem, that echo of the soul, is a penetrating awareness of the goodness and the mercy of God. He's pointing us to it in, Psalm, in verse 6. He makes me lie down in green pastures. When I'm uncertain about, is there going to be a place that will satisfy my soul? Heal me. It keeps reading. 
It's only the goodness and the mercy of God that resolve that. It's only the goodness of God. And it's something we become convicted of deeply here. Oh, goodness gracious. Can I say this? That one attribute of God, in other words, of the attributes of God, and please hear me, this is more of a, a Bible study this morning. One attribute of God is that God's good, but he's also holy, righteous, love, power. He's all of those things. One attribute of God can never become so disproportionately emphasized that it neutralizes all the rest. And you say, why is that important? It's because the very first thing mankind is tempted with is that they would become God of good. They would be tempted to decide good, and they could say what was good on their own and not have to trust a relationship with God to define what is good. Write down in your notes somewhere, write down Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, and, and read, read those when you go home. Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11, it says, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Out of the goodness of God, he extends goodness to us. Why? So that we can be made whole. That's always the goal of the goodness of God. Let's keep going. James chapter 5, verses 15 through 18, it says, uh, it talks about the process, watch, of lust and temptation. Watch this closely and points us back to the Garden of Eden where we're about to land there. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, but when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I am describing to you the events of the Garden of Eden. Romans chapter 5 says, death entered. This is a description of exactly what happens in the Garden of Eden. We're going to end up there. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. How many know what happens in the Garden of Eden? Deception. Watch the language. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing that is available comes from God. There is no good thing on this planet that doesn't originate from God. And I want to tell you something. That is never an issue solved here. It's an issue solved here. And we're going to end on that moment, okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 28 we know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good to those who are called according to his purpose. Out of the goodness of God becomes the fulfill and realized sense of our own purpose. Please hear me. You will never know the purpose of God if you do not have a grip on the goodness of God. You will always be suspicious about what it is God's doing in you, through you, and around you. But it is the purpose of God that is only seen clearly as we stand in faith and accept the goodness, the essence of God. As the, as the psalmist would write, he said, I, I would have been distressed if I thought I wouldn't see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, but we do see the goodness of the Lord. We live in a world of complexity. We live in a world that we will not see and know everything the way it is until the end of the age. And beloved, I'm becoming more and more comfortable with that reality. More and more aware that there is a good God, even though the things on this planet are the result of the fall, I look around and say, Father, there's something still in here. The longer I serve you, the more I know you, the more I walk with you, the more of your glory you're willing to unveil to me, I'm going to come away with the sense that there is a God that is good. We're not done here this morning, okay? Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. Exodus 33 
verses 18 and 19. I've got to say one other thing that came to me just before I was walking out. <clears throat> remind me to end with when I decide what is good. Just remember, remind me that, okay? Exodus 33. Exodus 33, here's the point of enlightenment. Everybody pay close attention. Exodus chapter 33 comes immediately after, verse, after chapter 32. Turn to somebody and say, I am so glad I came to church today. Great, thank you. I, I, I received that applause and for great revelation. In Exodus 32, it's the story of the golden calf. Moses goes up, it's the first great worship disaster. God is up on the mountain giving Moses an outline for the tabernacle, the Ten Commandments, or we know to be the Ten Commandments, giving him an outline for that. And he says, by the way, they've lost their mind down there in the valley. They've taken the gold I gave it, made it into a golden calf, and they're worshiping it before me. In other words, in my presence, they're trying to worship me, and it's not working out. Watch. He said, they've ate, drank, and rise up to play. Did you know that most worship services can be defined by those terms today? Just if you'll come in, I'll try to give you something that satisfies your hunger emotionally and psychologically, quenches your thirst just a little bit, and then we can make you feel better. Eat, drink, rise up to play. But God said, you know what? It's possible to do those three things, and worship has never happened. Somebody hear me. Because worship, worship is inviting him as the source of who I am. And that's not what was happening in that valley. Moses comes down, and they, Moses and God having a conversation. Everything goes sideways. You get to chapter 33, and God says this to Moses. He says, I'm not going with you. I'm going with them. I'll go with you, but I'm, I'll send an angel. But I'm, if I go with them, I'll kill them. I'll, I'm over them. And Moses says, what's going on? That's not the God who you said you are. And if you do that, and he says, I'm going to go with you. And then Moses says, no, go with us. If you don't go with us, I won't leave this place. You won't go with us. He leverages God. Watch the conversation. And then right out of the middle of nowhere, remember, Moses has just come down off the mountain. Watch this. He's encountered the glory of God. He's received the, the first tablets and, I, and, and the instructions for the tabernacle. Watch this. And as he comes down off the mountain, having encountered the glory of God in that moment that we just don't really know a whole lot about, Moses is now down in the valley dialoguing with God about what he's going to do. And he says, well, wait a minute. Uh, that's not who you are. You're supposed to be a good God. And that's just, this, this isn't working out right. So in verse 18, all of a sudden, Moses makes a declaration. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory or or this, I just came down from the mountain and your glory passed and it was indescribable. Everything that I thought you would be towards your people somehow was transmitted by a medium of glory. Why? Because even though we're in the Old Testament, Christ in us, the hope of glory, glory in me, the hope of transformation, transformation, the hope of holy, it's a circular thing. When Moses encountered glory, he saw the possibilities of a transformed people. I believe that. When Moses encountered the glory of God on the mountain, he saw what could be. And he comes down off the mountain, he engages this conversation, watch, and then he turns for God and essentially says, I I'm not sure I know who you are. I need to talk to the guy I just talked to on the mountain. I need that God. And out of nowhere, he says, show me your glory. Watch how God responds. 
And he said to himself, I pray, I myself, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show compassion, or there's that word, mercy, on whom I will show compassion. So he says, show me your glory. He says, great, I'm going to let my glory, if you keep reading, I'm going to let my glory pass before you. Watch this. He doesn't say when glory passes before you, you're going to know I'm all powerful. He doesn't say when my glory passes before you, you're going to have a perfected understanding of all the craziness of the world that you live in. He doesn't say when my glory passes before you, you're going to know my love. He doesn't say when my glory passes before you, you're going to know I'm holy. He says when my glory passes before you, you're going to know I'm good. Beloved, there are goodness of God can only be answered by an encounter with glory. It is not cerebral, it is spiritual. As Abraham sat at the base of the mountain three, four weeks ago, we studied with a son, didn't know the outcome, knew he was going up on the mountain to allegedly sacrifice, but before he takes a first step up the mountain with Isaac in the wood to burn for a burnt sacrifice, he turns to the servants and says, the boy and I are going there to worship and return. As we stand in front of a mountain of chaos, complexity, and conflict, the determination we must make is, God, I'm unaware of the outcome on the other side, but I know you are good and your mercy endures forever. And I don't understand what's going on. I can't even see the way clearly, but I'm going to take a first step up this mountain and I'm going to worship. Father, I need to see your glory. I need to know your glory because I need my soul and my spirit assuaged beyond what my mind can comprehend. And what we used for a meme here recently was this. It is only the presence of God that can resolve the matters of the mind. They can't be resolved. Only the presence of God can resolve in our heart the matters of the mind that can't be resolved. It is only the presence of God. Only the presence of God. Now, when he says this to him, he said Moses needed to know the goodness was the product of God's mercy and not the entitlement of the recipient. Please hear me that. Please hear that. He said, you'll know my goodness and see my mercy is an extension. You see, because he wanted to say, I'm going to show you my glory and let you see that my goodness flows out of the essence of who I am. It is not a response to what you've done. Why is that important? I'm going to keep saying this until we get it. Because mercy is never an entitlement. Mercy is never anything that we deserve. Mercy is never anything that we can earn. Mercy flows out of the essence of God. And God said, I love you because of who I am, not what you've done. Do you get that? God is love. Human beings have to have a reason for loving. God doesn't have a reason to love. God loves because of who he is, not what you've done or what I've done. And he wants to connect mercy and goodness so that we have a really clear understanding. That every drop of mercy we will ever receive flows out of his goodness, not my acts. When he said, I'm going to pass before you. And of course, if we learn from the backside of the story, he says to Moses, okay, I'll go with you. 
What, what, was this a game? Was he playing a game? Because God knows everything. No, he needed Moses to become aware of the power of mercy and the essence of goodness. Here's the place I'm going to end. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, look there with me. Genesis chapter 3. In verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more evil than any beast, more crafty. We know this story. We've studied it here hundreds of times. But I want to show you two verses. Okay, and she, the serpent slithers up and convinces the woman that this tree is good for fruit. Verse 2, or verse 1, he says, And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, from the fruit of the trees we may eat, the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of this tree. In the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows, watch this, in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, watch, knowing good from evil. Eleven times in the two opening chapters of Genesis, including the closing verse of chapter 1, which is the the sort of crown, crowning achievement on creation, 11 times it says God created and it was good. God did and it was good. Please hear me. God's creative act, please hear me, and these words are important, are not only expression of his will, but an extension of his nature. I know that sounds terribly wordy, and I've done two or three definitions that are way, that way. But we think of creation as God's will being expressed, and it is. But it is also an extension of his nature. What, I mean, what do I mean? Look this way. God cannot do anything apart from who he is. The God who is the am is the God who does, okay? But he says, first and foremost, you need to know that I am the I am, and as then Hebrews would say, faith is believing he is. He is. So I want to say again, the real question of our faith, are we people who will still believe that God is when the God who is doesn't, or the God who can doesn't, we will, still, will we still believe he is? Because if you, where, where you wrestle with that, you wrestle with the goodness of God. And can I tell you something? that the goodness of God, I believe, is an aggregate over the journey. I don't know of anybody who's lived long into their 80s or 90s and followed God and say, you know, the longer I've followed God, I can't think of one. I can't find one in the Bible. The longer I've lived, the more I've discovered that uh, God's really not all that good. You ever heard anybody say that? There's something intrinsic. I've seen people say that who have a horrific history of events that seem to have fined them, uh, just, just, you know, coincidences and things, but they, they look at me and say, God is good. You see, goodness has to do with more than what God does. Goodness flows from the essence of who he is, and that is the essence of our faith. We tend to make our biggest determinations about God on the back of what has happened or what we perceive he does and not the essence of who he is. The argument between Moses and God was, I don't know what you're about to do, but it's a departure from everything I know you are. God was talking to Moses about what he was going to do. Moses was talking to God about who he was. God, I, I, that, that's not the God you are. I, 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 just stop. You're messing with my mind. 
So I need to move beyond my mind. Just let me see your glory. Let me experience your presence. And he, God says, okay, we can do that because you're about to have a reset on that. Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. What? Knowing good. Beloved, please hear me. That when I decide what is good, watch this. Here's just the real point of revelation. When I have the power to decide what is good, I become my own source of mercy. I'm going to wear this out. Watch verses 5 and 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good, wait. Please get this. Hans, this is just so penetrating my soul. She made a departure from God's opinion. God's opinion was that tree is not good for food. That tree, if you eat of it, will bring death and it will separate you from me. But she looked at the tree and she made a determination about what was good in the face of what God had declared was not good. And very much in keeping with the hiss of the serpent, she had become a God unto herself. You see, in verses 5 and 6, the adversary exchanges the goodness of God for the godness of good. We get to become the God of our own good. Beloved, please hear me. I know I mentioned this last week. I don't have a soapbox to harp on, but there's no place in culture and no issue that is more uh, uh, passionately on the rise from culture right now than the issue of LGBTQIA, transgenderism, or same-sex relationships. I am not a gay basher. I'm not a homophobe. I'm none of those. I have passionately preached about this because I believe it is the single greatest deception that the moment we can decide what is good, watch, the moment we make a decision that however I was born or created was not only an expression of God's will towards Tom Sturbins, but it was an extension of his nature because Genesis chapter 1 says, I made him in my image, male and female. I designed them. I made them that way. I have no choice. I'm not here to win an argument, beat anybody up, or beat anybody down. And I wouldn't, I probably be, wouldn't be hitting it passionately publicly so much if it wasn't the primary argument coming in the church. I, what goes on outside the church? I'm like Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. They're of the flesh of the world. I don't really have anything to enter into the debate about the philosophy of transgenderism beyond the walls of the church. Right here is the domain God's called this pastor to. And what I'll speak to, and even in these moments of awkward silence, because you see it's not being talked about, because we're told that if we take that stand that we're not loving, can't we just love people the way that they are? Yes, beloved, but I can never separate a God of love from a God of holy, because a God of love who extends an expression of his will also extends holy at the same time. It is love that meets me where I am, but it's holy that takes me where I need to go. It's love that brought him to the earth, hallelujah, love that drove him to the cross, but wholly brought him out of the grave. It is both sides of his nature. I can't not preach a gospel message that said there is a good God. He made you, designed you. He didn't lose his mind when you were born. He, you're, not, you're not a cosmic accident. There's a God that knows you before the foundation of the world created you. He is a good God and his mercy endures forever. Yeah. Let's stand together. Let's all stand, please. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. 
For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.